Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you. Fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week we meet at this table for an hour to experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joys and our lessons learned. We share topics that tradition tells us there are some things we just don't talk about. But here we live beyond both the judgment and the wreckage. We share some aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for way too long. Every week, we start right where we are. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. However, you must come dressed in your inner awesome, believing that impossible is merely a word. You're listening to... Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, Cablecast on Cox, Verizon, Fios, Channel 37, and Comcast, Channel 27 in Reston, and webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Should you miss, miss us, you can catch our archive, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. podcast on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you feel like connecting with me offline, you know that's easy. Email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. Our theme this week continues to focus on the question or the statement. Were it not for those who care, or perhaps a byline is more descriptive in this question. What about the children? Many guests at Frankly Speaking have shared their expertise, their commitment and compassion to and for young people who have been left behind, left out and left over. Young people who, without support, cannot control and improve the quality of their lives. We've had conversations with educators, physicians, mental health providers, nonprofit organizations who serve the disenfranchised, parents, providers, and appropriately the young themselves. All have brought light and understanding to the conversation. However, My thoughts are agitated when I look at our world today and the one we're preparing as our legacy. And I think of of the girl in middle school who wants so much to escape the assaults she finds on social media. The young man who is addicted to the violence of his video games. I think of parents who see their child as lazy and distant, not knowing those behaviors could be signs of depression. 
I think about the teacher who has so many children, she cannot address their multiple learning styles and the associated potential learning disabilities. I think of the dysfunction of families resulting from homelessness, underemployment, generational domestic violence, and more. Their world we do not see may look or sound something like this. And I quote, Home was hard for Shannon. In private, she was struggling with her sexual identity. She often heard her family use hurtful language about LGBTQ community. So she didn't feel comfortable confiding in them about what was going on in her head. She wanted to open up with her parents, but she wasn't sure how to do it without creating conflict. And she worried about what would mean for their relationship. So she began to suffer in silence. The Gaddafi Washington Project provides critical response to families and friends of homicide victims in order to prevent retaliation and promote healing. These survivors are thrust suddenly into a dark, desperate, confusing place just at a time when there is much business to attend to. Investigations, funerals, forms, and fear dominate amid often debilitating grief. Sometimes to ignore is easier, and yet, from 2018 statistics, among all children under 18 years in the U.S., 43% live in low-income families. They represent 23% of the population, but comprise 33% of all poverty. Every year globally, 3.1 million children die due to poor nutrition. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for children, adolescents, and young age adults, 15 to 24. A young, among younger children, suicide attempts are often impulsive. Ironically, it is no longer safe for any parent to say, my child would never. Are there challenges uncomfortable to talk about, to think about, to experience, to solve? Yes. Are there challenges necessary to talk about, to think about, to experience, to solve? Yes. The challenge for all of us today is to be a lighthouse in the life of this and the next generation. Be on the lookout for lost souls. Be alert to those who may be in need or have nowhere to go or no way to get there. Be a lighthouse to a child. Guide a child. Protect a child. You don't have to say much. Just let the child know you're there should the need arise. My guest today helps us to understand the impact the scope and the size of some of these issues that I've defined. She's been described, and I quote, as an innovative, mission-focused, and solution-oriented leader who brings experience designing and strengthening child, youth, and family-focused initiatives. She focuses on vulnerabilities that impact or result in the potential situations that may result in what I've described above. I'd like to welcome 
to the table, Dr. Suzanne Lemenistral, to the, excuse me, Frankly Speaking Conversation. Suzanne, please help our audience better understand your journey and your passion in this ever so important yet very uncomfortable space for youth and families as you add to the latest chapter of our Frankly Speaking Human Library. Suzanne, the mic is yours. Oh, well, hi, Tyra. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really honored to be on your show. And um, it's, a, it's a really great uh, pleasure to be speaking with you tonight. So when I think about my journey, I um, started off as probably what you would call a pretty shy kid, um, kind of a bookworm. And I grew up in a two-parent family in upstate New York uh, in a university town and with an older brother and younger sister. And I think um, from a pretty young age, I had pretty pretty free access to any book that I wanted to read. And, and now that I think back about the kinds of books that my that my parents let me read um, that were on my on the shelves um, in our family room. My mom was an English teacher, and uh, she was a big collector of literature. So I read at a pretty young age uh, Maya Angelou and uh, Toni Morrison and a lot of pretty deep books for for an elementary school student and middle school student. I and would think so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I also. Um, uh, you know, was a big observer of human behavior also at a pretty young age. And I became really engaged uh, starting in fourth grade in, in Girl Scouts. And I had a leader who I would describe, uh, she recently passed away about a year ago, but I would um, describe her as a very strong feminist. And uh, really, um, you know, this was in the, in the 70s. And you know, girls can do basically anything boys can do and don't be afraid and you have to try new things. And that was kind of the philosophy she, she had with our Girl Scout troop. So I started, you know, doing things like whitewater rafting and going rappelling in caves and, you know, doing, um, you know, canoe racing and like all kinds of sailing trips, like all kinds of stuff that I never would have imagined that I could do. And so that also had a pretty big influence on me uh, growing up. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, I became interested in psychology when I was in high school after taking a psychology class and really had wanted to become a child therapist and uh, be able to work with kids. Um, I, I loved babysitting. I loved uh, taking care of children and uh, wanted to pursue that as a career, and I went on to major in psychology in college. Uh, I went to a small liberal arts school called St. Lawrence University in mm. upstate New York, and then, um, and then I, um, after I graduated, I worked, um, did did some volunteer work and worked for two years in a group home with girls who had been abused and neglected and in and out of various uh, systems of care, foster care, uh, residential uh, treatment facilities, hospitals, um, you know, those kinds of uh, facilities, and then um, the group home. And so I, um, I got to see firsthand at a pretty young age, I was in my early 20s, the kind of um, trauma, you know, that 
the, the, the girls had experienced. Um, and I don't think I was ever really exposed in my life to such horrific, you know, situations that these girls lived through. And that had a pretty big impact on me. And I decided that I wasn't quite cut out to be a child therapist because I just, I felt like I, it would be a very stressful kind of career and I didn't think that I could do it, you know, for a long time. So I decided to go into graduate school to get a doctorate in, and focus more on research and um, went to Penn State and got a doctorate in human development and family studies. And I worked um, uh, on a study that was focused on uh, adolescent depression prevention mm. and looking at how, uh, especially among amongst middle school kids and how to uh, prevent depression, uh, and and then got my first job at a research organization in the D.C. area, uh, Washington D.C. area. So since then, I've you know been involved in in doing research, managing the research process, working for a large national youth organization, the 4-H Youth Development Program, uh, and um, and doing a, a lot of different kinds of work um, in the research space. Well, you know. A, a lot of things resonate as I listen to your journey. And first of all, I want to go give a shout out to your recently deceased uh, Girl Scout leader. She apparently uh, mm-hmm. had a humongous impact on you when I'm listening to the things that you took up for the first time. That shy kid mm-hmm. was like suddenly freed to do things mm-hmm. that perhaps you never dreamed about. So that was absolutely wonderful. And then, yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking. I'm thinking when I was 20 and the kind of volunteer work or, you know, in my in college and all, and I found mine in uh, criminal justice. But the impact, when you were talking about the group home and trauma and being faced mm-hmm. with that as a young woman with your background, take mm-hmm. us back to that moment. Take us back to the group home. What happened to you personally trying to uh, demonstrate or live your servant's heart, which was definitely a part of you uh, Mm -hmm. in the midst of uh, people who were not empowered, who were powerless and Mm -hmm. found themselves. What was that like for you? Well, it was it was challenging because I I wasn't really trained. (laughs) I wasn't really prepared, you know, for the role. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was I was hired to be what they called a house parent. So I was, you know, to to help prepare meals, take the girls on recreational activities and, you know, supervise their homework. Um, I, I remember being really shocked that so many of them smoked. Um, you know, these are like 15, 16 year olds. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, and, and I realized like that they smoked, um, to relieve stress. Like that was yes. a huge stress re- release for them. I also, um, realized that, um, you know, this, it, it was interesting because I don't think the kind of abuse and neglect that they faced didn't really, um, it, you know, the girls were all, all race and ethnicities, mm-hmm. um, all income levels, you know, some came from upper middle class homes, some came from, you know, lower income homes, like the the poverty, the, the abuse and neglect um, that they faced you know, there is some intersectionality with, with poverty, but, but the girls that happened to be in this particular group home 
were from all different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I think um, I, it was kind of um, difficult also because I was probably maybe five to six years older than the oldest girls. And so there wasn't quite enough age difference between us for mm-hmm. me to be an authority figure <laughs> quite, you know, that way. I wasn't old enough to be like a parent figure. I was kind of more like a big sister, like a right. I get it. Mm-hmm. Supportive big sister kind of figure. Mm-hmm. So trying to figure out where you know I could best help them was was challenging. And I think also to um, to not to to learn. I think this is probably where I developed my orientation towards. Um, the field of positive youth development. So to to look at the strengths that these girls had, uh, many of them had developed really great senses of humor, um, I think also as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very funny, very theatrical, um, and, um, and, and they had leadership skills mm-hmm. in a way, you know, like that they had developed also. Um, so, so I think that's probably the first, um, my first, you know, take at trying to, you know, like n- remove the label, the labels from them, and to think about the strengths that they had, and that, and the, and the resiliency that they had because of having gone through what they've, what they went through, and being separated probably from some family members that they were pretty close to. Um, you know, so so there were a lot of ways that I tried to reframe the situation, uh, which I think um, impacted my later, you know, career uh, path that I've taken. Well, you know, I'm thinking a couple, three things that uh, were behind the story you just told. One is the system uh, is so much needing help like the mm-hmm. home parent, that they may mm-hmm. not find the best prepared home parent for that environment. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they just hired because you were intelligent, sensitive, you wanted to be there. So the mm-hmm. one thing I'm thinking is the systems of care that we have, we have to, and I don't know how you do this, I don't. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. to staff them with people that are, at a space in their life where they're comfortable enough. I think, quite frankly, you did a wonderful job just in the observation of the positive Mm -hmm. youth development because Mm -hmm. many people don't take the time, Suzanne, to see that, that in order for these young kids to survive, you know, their leadership skills were survival skills, but Mm -hmm. the humor, Mm -hmm. yeah, the humor Mm -hmm. and the theatrical, the diva, you know, all of that Mm -hmm. was how Mm -hmm. they were surviving. So I'm thinking kudos to you at that young age and Mm -hmm. particularly about removing labels. Oh, if Mm -hmm. we could only get there. But I want to move Mm -hmm. on to something that I got really interested in. You were talking about uh, human development and depression in the young. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit more? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, the study that I worked on, and this was, you know, a, a few years ago, but um, girls, it, it was actually girls at the time, girls were more susceptible to depression than, than boys um, at, at the middle school time period. And so um, 
the depression prevention program that I worked on was looking at um, ways to um, increase positive social interactions and um, to be able to identify ways to cope with different kinds of feelings. Um, so, so that was, that's, that's what I focused on. Uh, now I'm not sure if the statistics have changed, if it's more evenly split amongst the, you know, genders, but um, at the time we were looking, you know, specifically at the gender disparity between girls and boys. Um, mm-hmm. and, in, in the middle school age but um so you know i i know depression you know i think especially now because of the uh pandemic and yes yes the social isolation that a lot of people at all ages have felt um that uh my organization that i work for now the national academy of sciences just came out with some online tools that kids can use um to learn how to better, you know, cope with different kinds of emotions and feelings. And there's some free online tools for elementary school kids and also for older uh, teens. Uh, so I think um, for your listeners, you know, if you if they if they have um, children, you know, in elementary school, middle school, high school, that we do have these free tools that are available um, on our website, nas.edu. Uh, so, um, say that, say that. Now, wait a minute, slow down, oh, sure. because because <laughs> yeah. I believe uh, what you're giving is a very critical gift. I'm hearing the word free. I'm hearing the word mm-hmm. online. <laughs> I'm hearing right. the word elementary, middle school. These mm-hmm. kids, like, have been socially isolated, and mm-hmm. uh, though we may not be able to hear their silent screams, there, I, I've just been observing, okay, and uh, the behavior sometimes is aggressive, sometimes it's isolated, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. so say very very slowly and clearly the website where they can sure. access these free tools. Sure, and I should also mention they're available in English and Spanish. Oh, as well. great! So it's, um, the website it's www. n a-S dot E-D-U. Okay. I'll, and remind me, we're going to repeat that at the end. That is okay. probably one of, no, seriously. Um, I haven't heard anybody talking about tools, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> online mm-hmm. access tools. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm imagining that it, it, they're tools that have like uh, critical thinking or creative problem solving elements in them, right? Right, exactly, and um, they have short videos in it, and it teaches um, kids how to do, like, different sorts of uh, exercises, like deep breathing and things like that, relaxation exercises, oh. and, and it, it kind of walks them through it. So I think the younger the younger kids' tools are designed to be done, you know, in conjunction with a parent or, okay. or an adult adult you know guardian and then the older kids tools they can do them on their own uh but yeah i i would encourage your listeners to check them out and um they wow. just came out recently and uh would be you know it's because it, that's the other thing i think with the pandemic is that it's also um there's been an increased you know demand for mental health services yes yes and, yes um and, and, and it's difficult to find people now you know so these are these are available so that people can, you know, use them on their own and um, 
and and that kind of thing without without having to to pay for them so yes absolutely and i'm i'm thinking of we're talking about the kids and what has resonated with me throughout particularly when we were in lockdown was mm-hmm. the um the uh health care uh mm-hmm. service mm-hmm. population across the board were exhausted mm-hmm. and and That's resigning mm-hmm. and and who was going to be there for them and both by the way did they have time to go get help mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, some of the stories and some of the nurses uh, you know I just I, my heart just went out listening to the stories and I'm saying now these people are trying to keep people alive and bits and bits and bits of them are being chipped away and I wonder I don't mm-hmm. know I don't know what the status is to deliver uh, mental health care to them at this point I have no idea but um, I really appreciate this for the young people. Speaking of young people, um, even though we've been socially isolated, it didn't keep them from being online. And there's another arena that you've done, your organization's done a lot of research in, and that is the one of bullying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that's right. Um, mm-hmm. And I was hoping maybe uh, you could uh, share some parameters of what you did and the impact and is there any hope um yeah <laughs> there's always hope Tyra yeah <laughs> please I mean, tell me there's hope <laughs> yeah and that's you know I know at the beginning um you know you you had mentioned about why I got into research and asked me that and I think because uh I think I'm a firm believer that research um, and science can be used to help solve um, the world's most critical problems. Uh, So that's one of the reasons why I I got into research, because I think after the experience I had, you know, working at this group home, I I questioned, you know, why why these girls um, had to live the kinds of lives that they lived and why didn't someone help the families at a very young age and and that's how i got interested in prevention and intervention but the um report that i worked on uh at the national academies of sciences engineering and medicine is called preventing bullying through science policy and practice Mm -hmm. and it basically um kind of calls out um so i worked with the committee of research experts in bullying uh, for a little less than two years to come out with this report, which was released in 2016. And really um, what what the committee concluded is that bullying um, is really associated with very harmful short and long-term consequences, uh, both for the kids who are bullied um, and those who do the bullying. So um, both both parties have very harmful short and long-term consequences because usually you you would think that the kids who do the bullying um, there there's not really you know they're not the pro- you know they don't have any problems they're you know they you know end up going along through life fine but that's that the research shows that they also have um, issues and then the kids Sometimes people, researchers call them bully, bully victims. Um, so kids who are both the perpetrators and the targets of bullying have the, the greatest risk for poor 
psychological outcomes. So the kids who are both bullied and, and who do the bullying. Um, so a lot of kids are, are, are bullying other kids because they themselves are being bullied. Um, they have the, they have the worst kind of psychological outcomes later on. And I was, I was just, I was going to ask you as you, uh, when you came to a comma or a period to profile the bullying type of person because in my mind obviously they're bringing problems to the table and uh, Mm -hmm. bullying for them in my mind is some kind of release from something and yeah exactly yeah and they may you know we we looked at a lot of different factors whether you know they were more likely to be abused and neglected as children, you know, younger children, um, whether they had, you know, come from violent homes. And it's hard to like pinpoint exactly a, a clear profile. There, there was a researcher on the committee that I worked with who looks at, um, she, she calls them mean girls, <laughs> you know, girls who are kind of from high status, you know, popular girls. Um, and they, they, you know, are, are one kind of segment that, that kind of turn out, you know, fine as adults. They don't really have any negative um, consequences of their bullying behavior. But, yeah, so there's, you know, I definitely, after, you know, working on this report, I definitely felt like a lot more um, understanding, I think, for for kids. Um, they're, they're more likely to be depressed, kids who bully others. They're more likely to go on and engage in high-risk activities like like stealing stuff, vandalism, and they are, they also are more likely to have more negative outcomes as adults than um, kids who don't bully. And did you uh, come up with a segmentation or what kind of home they might come out of? Uh... Um, yeah, no, we didn't really go into that kind of detail. We were looking more at how to, how to prevent bullying okay. and, and okay. what to do about like bullying that happens. We weren't looking as much about the etiologies of bullying behavior, like why kids bully. We looked at that briefly, but not in a, a lot of detail. So how do we prevent it? So, <laughs> so I know like one thing that that uh, that it says in our report that does not work is uh, zero tolerance policies. Hmm. So sometimes, um, you know, schools schools will say or school districts will say, you know, like one one bullying incident and you're 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 suspended from school, and okay. that doesn't that doesn't work. Um, they they those kinds of policies policies could lead to underreporting of bullying. Um, you know, like, so if kids are, are going to be suspended or expelled, um, that's, you know, it's, it's just counterproductive. So it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, and the committee that I worked with, they recommended that zero tolerance policies uh, be discontinued. Um, what they found based on the research at the time that we looked, that we looked at is that, um, and a lot, you know, most of the research that we looked at happened, um, uh, like for intervention programs, happened in school context. So what they call um, multi-component programs, and and those are school programs that have um, 
universal elements. So that means like every kid in the school would get the same, you know. Okay. Program. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, and then along with that, there would also be more targeted interventions for the kids who would be the most most at risk of either being bullied or or bullying. So. It could be like um, teaching very intensive social emotional skills to mm-hmm. those children, or um, de-escalation approaches, um, like you know, kind of calming, you know, calming the situation down. Um, those those are effective at reducing bullying. Uh, the, there's uh, some some research um, that was that that's been happening, and um, interestingly, this started in. Um, some of the Scandinavian countries like Finland, where they really tried to look at um, the bystanders. Mm-hmm. So those kids who are watching the bullying behavior, but they yeah. don't, they don't do anything. Right. And so there are some, there are some intervention programs that are designed to really um, train kids what to do if they see a bullying situation happen. Uh, so how to intervene, how to how to act, and that kind of thing. So those those have some some evidence that they're effective. Um, so um, there's also uh, the committee that I worked with also looked at laws and policies related to bullying, and some school school districts have you know uh, laws and policies, and what what works well is to have um, those. Um, you know categories and who's protected um enumerated or like spelled out pretty clearly like um especially for lgbtq um youth uh to have them specifically mentioned as a protected group um is effective so so there's a lot of things that at all different levels both at the school level as well as at the you know kind of broader policy law level um things that can be done uh and so we have a number of recommendations in the report um and you know a lot of bullying as as you know has gone online um, yes yes cyber bullying yes and interestingly like we we found in our report that cyber bullying the committee decided it's not really a separate form of bullying it's just a different modality it's still distribution yeah it's just a distribution channel right Uh uh-huh Right, right. And and I just read a report that came out recently that showed that cyberbullying actually went went down over um the pandemic, which you would have thought that it would have gone up, but it's because like the kids weren't together in person either. So Right, you know, right. So a lot of times it didn't times feed it. Right. So a lot of times kids who are bullied online are also the same kids who are bullied uh, in person um, at school or, you know, after school. So um, and I think, you know, I think, um, you know, lots a lot of new research has come out since that report came out. But but I think I think there is a lot that can be done at, at all levels. Um, another, you know, we have some other strategies that we mentioned in the report for people who are who are teachers or uh, school employees, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, playground, you know, paraprofessionals um, to really, you know, monitor what we called hot spots, you know, where, where, um, you know, bullying might take place. Um, and also um, what we, we also list a few things in the report that don't work again, like the zero tolerance, putting kids together, 
And now I wanted I wanted to I wanted to interrupt you a couple of things. Uh, you're mm-hmm. just a fountain of information, and I'm I'm listening. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to be a critical listener, but um, actually, I think one of the more salient points that you just made, and you just made it again, is that de- zero tolerance does not work, and mm-hmm. and it can mm-hmm. lead to um, underreporting. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, the other thing. And, and the other thing I, I, I like that I hadn't thought about is cyberbullying is not a distinct, uh, it's not a distinct segmentation. Bullying is bullying. Cyberbullying is just another distribution channel. And when you mm-hmm. said generally the, the kids that are cyberbullied are the same ones that are um, bullied in person. And during mm-hmm. pandemic, those stats had actually gone down. When you were mm-hmm. talking about how uh, some of these uh, programs and schools are handled. I want you just to review. I know you said there were more targeted um, programs, but there was a multi-component program where all kids get mm-hmm. the same messaging. Am I re- mm-hmm. am I hearing that correctly? Right. Yeah. So they um, they're they're called um, universal um, the multi-component. So the the components include like the universal universality of the program. So meaning like every kid is experiencing it. And then, um, and then the, the, the other component is the targeted piece where the kids who are at high risk, um, are, are receiving, um, very specific and targeted interventions like, um, like the intense, um, social emotional skill training, that kind of thing. Okay. So, in the uh, all right, I got it. We're treating it on multi on multi. We're treating bullying in multi spaces. We have mm-hmm. one where everybody's getting the same messaging, and then we have a more intensive or targeted uh, curriculum or uh, exercises for those that may give them some skills, some critical skills managing. Uh, some of their vulnerabilities or their aggressiveness. Is that making sense? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Okay. Then, um, all right, so uh, laws and policies. We kind of mm-hmm. just said, you know, they're protected groups, but so what? The laws and policies are on the books. What mm-hmm. happens? Do schools interact with, how does that work? What is the intersection between the activity the recognition of the activity and the punishment based on the policy or the laws. Uh, so I know there's there was um, there's some there's research that's been happening where they look at like you know the laws on the book and they look at the different rates of bullying, especially for um, LGBTQ youth because. Um, we also found, you know, that there are, there are a few categories of kids who are at the most risk of being bullying, and those are LGBTQ youth and children, uh, uh, kids with disabilities, and yes. kids who are overweight or or obese. Um, yes, those are typically like the three groups of, of children that are on youth that are most um, at risk, and so. Um, a lot of uh, states and localities are looking at different policy solutions, and um, it, it's you know sometimes you know families will will sue 
um, you know, sue the sue in court, sue the school districts or things, and that's you know one way to go. But it's it's very difficult to to prove, you know, bullying uh-huh. um, and that kind of thing. So um, it's one of the things that the committee recommended is um, there. Were, well, there were a couple of things that they said that law and policy do have the potential to strengthen state and local efforts to respond to bullying and that um, that really the, the development of model laws and policies has to be evidence-based. And, of course, um, it wouldn't be one of our consensus studies without seeing more, re- more research is needed because one of the things, you know, that we do with our studies is we find out what are some of the gaps in our knowledge um, and, and the committees um, outline those pretty specifically. So, uh, yeah, but the zero tolerance one was, was a big one that they, you know, yeah, that is, you know, yeah, that can help in my opinion, Mm -hmm. that can help all Mm -hmm. organizations that can help, Mm -hmm. you know, the other thing that, that I don't want to escape, we've been focusing on children, but there mm-hmm. are adults that bully. There's intergenerational bullying in families, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's right. a model. Yeah. It's a behavior that is modeled, and we have to remember that our children watch us, you know. That's, yeah, that's right. And I, I just um, recently, um, so my first non-child study that I did at the National Academies was, was focused, we, we were talking about nurses, nurses earlier, mm-hmm. and it was focused on um, nursing and how nurses can adjust um, health equity. And uh, I didn't know this before, I, I a lot before I, I worked on this study, but but bullying is a pretty significant problem um, um, for nurses too, mm-hmm. both more more senior nurses bullying you know nursing students and young younger nurses uh doctors uh bullying nurses nurses you know like so there's they're trying to do um you know a lot of um clinics and hospitals are trying in nursing schools trying to institute different programs so that um one one that i read about was really looking at um role like role playing and and how to um how to uh respond if you're in a bullying situation um how to respond effectively and and um people are testing out those kinds of interventions to see if they're effective but uh there there's definitely a lot more work that needs to be done in the adult bullying area as well as the child bullying absolutely and i wish that um Sometimes I wish we could remove the label and just talk about mm-hmm. uh, um, social behaviors that are aggressive, that are mean, plain old mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. consequences yeah. of, mm-hmm. you know, we give it that label mm-hmm. and it, it it's sexy when you're in middle school, you know, it, it's empowering, mm-hmm. you know, I can be a bully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, we've got we've got a lot of work to do. Let's let's mm-hmm. elevate the conversation and get back to you you, 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 um, mm-hmm. in all the things that have happened to you, and I know people have heard you uh, from reading Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison, which I find applaudable, 
<laughs> at a fourth grader level. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, <laughs> I'm not sure if I understood everything. I was well, saying. you know, uh, yeah. but the seed, the seed was there, right? Mm-hmm. The seed was mm-hmm. planted, and it and it probably as you've gone through life, you go, aha. That's what that mm-hmm. meant, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us a little bit more about you. You've got family, uh, mm-hmm. career. Uh, how do you balance all this um, as an educator, researcher? What you've got all of these things that you're doing. How do you? How do you have a successful mm-hmm. life? Yeah, that's that's a really good. Good question. So I have, I have, you know, a husband. I have two children who are now young adults. Uh, when they were younger, you know, I would say that um, a lot of my out of work life was um, pretty much tied up with taking care of my children's and family's needs, and you know, chauffeuring them around and and participating in their activities. Uh, I think, um, you know, I. I grew up, um, you know, I, I, I was known as a very organized person. I'm um, a Virgo. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, know, very, I know about um, you guys. Or, yeah. You know, yeah <laughs> organized. Um, neat. I like things orderly. And so, you know, I've always been very good at keeping like calendars and schedules and things. And so I think um, even though I know um, sometimes that can be annoying, I, I, I um, have grown up that way of just being very organized and um, efficient in how I, I plan out things. I like to plan. So so that's one thing um, I think that's helped me. And also, I think having a very supportive um, and uh, spouse and someone who was able and willing to take on uh, his share of the responsibilities for parenting was important. Uh, I've um, always kind of sought out positions where um, I've worked for organizations that have been very family friendly uh-huh. and supportive, supportive of um, balancing work and family, which I think is also important for, for people who are listening who want, you know, are thinking about having kids or, you know, want to have like a career and also a family life. Um, I think that's important. And I think the pandemic has also shown us that you can work in a hybrid mode and be successful and be productive. You can work, you know, um, three days a week at home and two days in the office and having that flexibility and, and also giving that flexibility to the people who work for me, I think is really important, uh, whether they have children or they just want, you know, to, to, to do other things besides work all the time um so i think um i've been fortunate to work you know both in the federal government and also for nonprofits where um work life balance has been respected and also um uh you know recognized as being important you know i um as i'm listening to you i'm thinking what we've really been talking about the whole conversation is respect for the individual if mm-hmm. we could respect yeah. one another, you know, we could mm-hmm. probably minimize some of the issues that uh, bubble up. But uh, mm-hmm. kudos to your spouse. Thank you, Mr. Mm-hmm. Spouse. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you this. All the things, of all the things that you have been through and cared about, what's been the best advice you've ever received? 
Hmm. I think um, the best advice, um, you know, women, I think, are probably uh, not trained, but kind of, you know, grow up not putting themselves first and thinking about other people, like, first and then themselves. And I think um, this is kind of simple advice, but I, I got it a long time ago. Like, this is professional advice. I got it a long time ago from an HR person who really said, like, that no one is going to look out for you except yourself. <laughs> so um, so basically meaning that you're your best advocate and um, you have to advocate for what you need and what you want and um, don't be afraid to do that. So I think that's been really good advice just because, you know, it seems so so obvious. Like, of course, you know, men are going to do that. Men are going to stand up for themselves and what they want. But women, I think, um, at least, you know, my generation of women were kind of trained not to do that. So I think that's been, been helpful advice for me. I think I, um, I'm happy to hear your words. It was just last Wednesday, I was a guest uh, uh, with a group of women, and my topic was treating yourself like someone you love. And mm -hmm. a great deal of that has to do with understanding that you are worthy. And mm -hmm. <laughs> you're here on this planet to do something that only you can do. And mm -hmm. uh, how important it is to say yes to the power that is mm -hmm. within you. So I appreciate mm -hmm. you saying that. And I thank your mm -hmm. HR person as well. Well, okay, yeah. let's, <laughs> let, let's, let's yeah. do something else. And what's the best advice you've given? Um, hmm. I think the best advice that I've given, and I've given this to several people that have worked with me, um, and again, the professional advice is, uh, you know, I mean, this is also kind of obvious, but but that, that basically you're 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 replaceable, and and this was in the context of um, people feeling like guilty for for leaving their their position and moving moving on or moving to a different role uh and um that again it, i guess it just goes back to put yourself first and think about you know what what makes you happy and what your needs are um so that's that's kind of you know i guess the flip side of the advice that i was given and it works right Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. 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 I think, people, I think so. It does. Yeah. And I think because people are afraid of change and afraid of um, making a mistake, taking a risk. And, and so, you know, I've always kind of coached people to 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 follow their their heart, follow their 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 passion and their dreams. And if, and if what they're doing um professionally isn't a, isn't a good fit for them or something that's not making them happy that that they should 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 change okay well i want you to know you heard it from a very successful person who manages her her life uh successfully and um i want to do two things i want to repeat the website where there is online where there are online tools for elementary school ch children as well as middle school children dealing with, uh, what, depression prevention? Would we want to say that? Or mm -hmm. what? 
Okay. Yeah, coping with stress and anxiety and depression, yeah. Okay, and that is www.nas, excuse me, www.nas.edu, www.nas.edu. Quickly, Suzanne, if someone wants to continue this conversation with you, how do they, can they connect with you? Uh, they can connect with me on, on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and um, I'm on Twitter and uh, that would be great. Or uh, they can email me slemenestrel at nas.edu. Okay, that's, that's, that one's good. That one's good. All right. Um, I ask Suzanne, as I ask everyone, to read a letter to her younger self. And she has Mm -hmm. prepared that, and I'm hoping you will do that now to kind of begin to close out our program. Would you mind? Oh, sure. Yeah, and and this was a lot of fun to write, Tyra. I had a a good time with this. Good, um, good. So, okay, here we go. Dear young Suzanne, do you remember how you wanted to become an artist when you grew up and live in Paris? I'm not sure where you developed that idea. I know you're a huge bookworm, so maybe in a story that you read, but I'm sorry to say you did not become a professional artist and live in Paris. But guess what? All those years of French classes paid off. You will marry a handsome French man and actually travel to France every year and visit all of the fabulous art museums in Paris. Mm. You will develop a great appreciation and love of art and you will see art wherever you are. And you will have two amazing children who also love art and can speak French like they've lived in France all their lives. And do you know how you're sort of shy and a careful observer of human behavior? You will use those skills and put them to use when you go on to get not one, but three advanced degrees in the social sciences. You'll grow out of that shyness, and you'll actually pass as a Myers-Briggs EMTJ, someone who's an extrovert and gets your energy from being around other people. So I wouldn't say that you're an extreme extrovert, but you're definitely one who likes working on teams and thrives off of brainstorming and team energy. And Suzanne, little Suzanne, remember how your older brother called you Felix after the neat and organized half of the odd couple duo from a popular (laughs) TV show when you were little? So your Felix-like organizational skills have also come in handy, allowing you to keep yourself and your kids' lives organized while working a full-time job, volunteering, and chauffeuring your kids around to all their activities. They also led you to becoming a successful manager and leader, one who could juggle multiple roles and responsibilities and nothing fell through the cracks. As a Girl Scout, you developed the idea that girls were powerful, capable, and strong and could do anything that they set their minds to. Girl Scouts made you not afraid to try new things, to seek adventures, to speak out when things were not just. From Girl Scouts, from your parents and your grandparents, you learned kindness, empathy, and to focus your career on the most vulnerable children. Growing up as a middle child has come in handy too. Remember how you helped negotiate and solve problems between your brother and sister? You will use those diplomacy skills every day in your job, at home, your volunteer life. Everything you learn and observe will become an important part of who you are as a grown-up. Be brave and stay real. Love, older Suzanne. All right. 
Suzanne, <laughs> listen to you. I hope all you women heard that. That was a powerful, powerful acknowledgement of believing in self and taking care of self. I love it when our stories look and walk beyond the words to places where expanded stories are born. Frankly speaking, is our time and our space to help, to heal, to educate and encourage each other into the best version of ourselves, no matter where we are in our journey. I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Suzanne Lamont. Uh oh, Ministrel. Um, and Suzanne has told you how to continue the conversation with her. You've been listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, Cablecast on Cox and Verizon, Channel 37, Comcast, Channel 27, in Reston, and Webcast worldwide on the internet. www.radiofairfax.org. Remember, your seat at the table is guaranteed. I look forward to next time. Until then, you remember, you are worthy. You are stronger than you feel. You are smarter than you think, more beautiful than you know, and more loved than you can ever imagine. You are chosen. You are important. Treat yourself like someone you love. This is Tyra listening to and loving you. Bye now.